Well, as we begin our time in the Word of God, I'll ask you to just bow with me and as we ask God to attend to our study this morning. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity to be together. We know that without you, we understand nothing. We're thankful that you, being an infinite God, chose to give us your Word and to provide us the Holy Spirit that we might understand We know by our own fallenness, we can know that you exist, but cannot really know you with understanding because the heart of man without Christ is hostile to you. And so as we approach your word this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes of understanding, that you would give us and grant us that miraculous grace to know exactly what your word means by what it says, that we might believe it, put it in practice, live it out, simply because we love our Savior, Jesus Christ. We desire you to be glorified, so glorify your name through us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Once again, we are returning to our study of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. So take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke chapter 1 as we continue our ongoing study, hearing the details of what we now know, if we didn't before, we now know it to be the greatest event in all of human history. We are, of course, talking about the incarnation of the Savior of the world, the event in which God became man, the God-man, Jesus. And we have been focusing our attention for the past several weeks in verses 26 to 38 of Luke chapter 1 and the encounter that Mary has with the angel Gabriel. As he, he comes into the very presence of Mary from the very presence of God, I was thinking about it this week, recently, talking with somebody else recently about UFOs, and someone was saying, do you believe in UFOs? And we were talking about UFOs, and I said, well, I don't know about UFOs, but if you can tell me how fast, it, how long it took for Gabriel to get from the presence of God to Mary, then I can tell you about UFOs. I don't know how long it took, but it's supernatural, it was instantaneous, and maybe that's what UFOs are. Maybe they're just angels moving across the screen. He comes from the presence of God. He comes to deliver news about the fulfillment of God's word to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, several hundred years before that, said that the virgin will have a son and he will save his people from their sin. Nothing is more important. And nothing is more needed in all of humanity than for mankind to be offered to him the only way to have the power and penalty of sin vanquished in his life. The only way that sin can be ultimately dealt with and the death blow be given to it is through the one who has come, the one who is named Jesus. The angel Gabriel has already come before. He had already been dispatched by God with 
good news in another occasion. We saw that in verses 5 to 25. It gives us the details of that event. God wants us to know those details. These were the details of that event. Remember, he comes to an old priest who is performing his duties at the time as priest in the temple, and he comes with a message that was, from every human perspective, an impossibility, an impossible message. The message was that he, in his aged state, being an older man, and his wife, who has been barren for all of her natural life, And now is well beyond childbearing years that he and her are going to have a son. This son would be the forerunner of the son who would come through the virgin. Of course, as we were walking through that passage, our mind was riddled by the reality, in fact, that according to human logic, this was not possible. This was not possible. Those who are senior saints, as we like to call them around here, Those who were well beyond childbearing years don't have children. And unless the very word of God, unless the text of God that we have before us said that nothing is impossible with God, we too would very often be like Zacharias. We would have responded in the same way that he did. We would have said that's impossible. Why? Because for it to happen, there needed to be a miracle. Something supernatural had to take place, something out of the ordinary, something well beyond human logic needed to happen, and that's exactly what God did. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. And so his wife, Elizabeth, becomes pregnant, as verse 24 said. She becomes pregnant, and now, in our narrative of Luke chapter 1, now she is in her sixth month of pregnancy. Six months have passed. There was all kinds of anxiousness, I'm sure, in the home of Zacharias and Elizabeth, particularly, if not only because Zacharias could not speak and could not hear anything, because that was what God did to him for not believing at the time. She's in her sixth month of pregnancy, and Gabriel is now dispatched to give other good news, and he's dispatched to this young virgin girl who lives in a country town known as Nazareth. She's engaged to a young boy named Joseph, and her family heritage, like his, is through the line of David, and her name we are given in verse 2 is Mary, Mary. Now, over the past several weeks, we have been dissecting this text, verses 26 through 38, and we have been hanging our thoughts on several aspects recorded in this account for us. The first one was the plan. We see Gabriel is sent in verse 26. He's sent from God, just like he was sent before. God's redemptive plan is now being carried out in time. God had decided this was going to happen. He had given prophecy through Isaiah because he, in his wisdom, had decided to redeem a people. And now in time it is taking place, and Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, is now dispatched with the news. 
And so he goes, secondly, as we saw, to the place. And the place is Nazareth, not a place that you would go for a destination, not some place where it was filled with all kinds of people, all kinds of hoopla, no lights in the sky, no great things happening there in Nazareth. Nobody thought anything good could come out of Nazareth. That was the reputation. And God dispatches his angel to that place to a young girl named Mary. That was the third thing. We saw the plan. We saw the place. We saw the person who is this young virgin named Mary. By the way, the word virgin is uh, parthenos. It's, it means purely virgin. It means virgin in every kind of way, which is kind of an interesting term to use, but some try to explain away the reality of Mary's virginity and all of those kinds of things. But the word itself says that. And then he makes the pronouncement to her. And this is where we left off last time. Right? We've already seen that when Gabriel made the announcement to her, that the announcement itself troubled Mary more than even being in the presence of a supernatural being, an angel from the presence of God. She was hearing that she had been shown grace from God. Notice... What it says, he said to her in verse 28, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. She's troubled at this statement. She is receiving the grace of God. How do we know that she's receiving the grace of God and isn't a dispenser of grace like the false religion of Catholicism will say? Because Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And for her to receive grace, the Lord had to be with her. Why? Because, just like all of us, she was an unworthy sinner. Mary was a sinner like you and I. In fact, the Bible tells us that all have sinned. All have sinned. There's no one exempt. In other words, it is a universal condition of every person. We're all born in sin. All are sinners, and therefore all sinners are in need of grace. Mary is one like us, a sinner in need of grace. And it was that very fact, it was that very reality that she was the recipient of God's grace, that the Lord was with her, that the Lord had shined his favor upon her that troubled her more than anything else that she had heard or will hear. Verse 29 clearly tells us that she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. She kept pondering it. That is simply to say, like you and I do, when we get one of those earworm songs in our ear that is on a children's music or something like that, that kind of plays throughout the TV or something with your kids, and then you hear this song, you can't get it out of her head. This is what's going on with Mary. She cannot get this statement out of her mind. She has no earthly context of understanding exactly what Gabriel has said. That she was and could be a recipient of God's grace, that shocked her to the core. It was a shocking statement. Why? Because as sinners before God, listen, we do not deserve grace. Grace. 
As sinners before God, we don't deserve to have God's favor. And so here is the sinner Mary. Here is this young virgin girl shocked by what she's hearing. She's so shocked, she's almost in this in this stunned stupor as she keeps pondering this salutation, so much so that Gabriel has to arrest her attention in order to finish his message. Notice how he goes on. He says in verse 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom it will have no end. Now, you notice just in those few short words that it isn't as if there is no sense of trembling, no sense of uh, fear, if you will, of being in the presence of Gabriel. There is some sense of that because Gabriel clearly says to her, do not be afraid. Anytime there is a supernatural being that's present, human trembling is the natural response. You can search the scriptures and find it clearly that anytime God, in some kind of way, dispatches his angel or even a Christophany, a pre-incarnate view of Christ is present. There is a trembling that takes place when the understanding that this is someone who is not of this world. Why? Because sinful fallenness always trembles when righteousness is present. It always trembles. Light expels darkness. Darkness runs from the light. And so Gabriel says to her, do not be afraid. God's favor is with you. In other words, I'm not here for judgment, Mary. I'm here with good news. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to give you good news. What news? News is you are going to conceive and have a son. Wow, fair enough. Not so much a miraculous message. At least not from a human perspective. I mean, it's completely different than what Zacharias heard, at least how Zacharias heard it in his own mind. Here is Zacharias, an old man. His wife is an old woman. They are beyond the years for procreation in any natural sense. And yet here Mary is hearing, you're going to conceive and bear a son, not so miraculous. Mary was young. She was about to be married, in fact. She was betrothed to Joseph. Her and Joseph would surely consummate their marriage in time. And being of childbearing years, she would surely have children. All of that made sense. Not really all that unusual, not something out of the ordinary, but Gabriel doesn't stop with just that. He continues to give six details about this son that indicates the not-of-this-world nature of this pronouncement. Six details about this son that are out of this world. First, he gives her what she is to name him. His name shall be Jesus. You're going to conceive, you're going to bear a son... 
And you shall name him Jesus. The Old Testament Hebrew word is Yeshua. Yeshua. Yeshua means God is salvation. God is salvation. Now, in our text here in Luke chapter 1, Mary is not told why she is to name him that. She is just told, this is what you will name him. She's not told why. But in Matthew's gospel, we are told that Gabriel, when he is dispatched to Joseph, because Joseph, once he found out Mary was pregnant, had the mind to dispel her, to divorce her peaceably, to get her out of the way quietly because he didn't want to have anything like that in his life. He has a dream. Gabriel speaks to him in the dream. And Gabriel says, listen, don't be afraid to take her as a wife. She's going to have a son, but it's a son that's born by the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in a moment. And you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He will save his people from their sin. Now that alone says something miraculous about his conception. Just his name alone says that this is a miracle. If he was to save his people from their sin, then he needed himself to be sinless. He himself needed to be someone who could, in fact, accomplish what no one could accomplish because by no means is anyone justified before God because no one is without sin. And so if Jesus is to save his people from their sin, then he himself needed to be sinless because if he was to be a sinner like Mary and like us, then he would need grace. He would need the grace of God upon his life, and so his very name implies and speaks to his sinlessness. He is sinless. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthian church, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus Christ is sinless, the divine one who would save. Why? Because he was able to save his people from their sins. So that's the first aspect that Gabriel gives to Mary. Listen, he is to be named Jesus. This is a divine child. Secondly, Gabriel says that he will be great. He will be great. You notice that in verse 32. He will be great. In other words, he is perfectly righteous. Perfectly righteous. You remember Luke said of Zacharias and Elizabeth that they were righteous in the sight of the Lord. In other words, Zacharias and Elizabeth's righteousness was not an earned righteousness. They did nothing to earn that righteousness. Why? Because by the works of the law, no man is righteous. Galatians 2.16, Galatians 3.11 clearly state that. There was an imputed righteousness, and that only comes by means of faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him. And so theirs was an imputed righteousness. But Jesus has no imputed righteousness. Jesus is great. He is inherently righteous. 
Why could Jesus save those who are his? Because he is inherently great. He is inherently great. The word is megas. It's, it's where we get our word large, huge. But here it doesn't mean that. When it's in reference to Jesus Christ, it's talking about his entire being, his entire life. All of that is great. He will be great. In other words, compare him to anyone or compare him to anything else that has been offered. He is greater. Take Jesus Christ and place his spiritual value against any other system offered by men in which men claim that you can be saved and Jesus Christ is greater. Look at his sufficiency to save completely. Look at the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to pay for sin completely so that man is not under the wrath of God when they believe upon Jesus Christ. And you look to Jesus, he is the only sufficient one. In fact, turn over for a moment to John's Gospel. The Apostle John speaks about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 6. And in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 39, notice what it says. Well, actually, we'll go back to the Second part of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed many, many signs before them and yet they were not believing in him. Why? So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For this cause they could not believe because Isaiah again said... He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things, here it is, verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now who is the personal pronoun he in verse 41 it is none other than Isaiah Isaiah saw his glory and Isaiah spoke concerning him so who did he speak about whose glory did Isaiah see he spoke about the Messiah He spoke about the one born of the virgin in Isaiah. Isaiah saw his glory. Now that's an interesting detail for us to remember because Isaiah, listen, Isaiah saw his glory. Who is the his glory that he saw? He saw the glory of Christ, the one to be born of a virgin. He saw Christ before he came to earth as a man. What did he see? He saw his greatness. In fact, remember when Isaiah was going into the temple? And he has a vision from God. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And his 
robe fills the temple. His glory fills the temple. The angels are all around. And they are saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. His glory. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, he saw the glory of Christ. Why? Because the glory of Christ is the same as the glory of God. They are one. You say, really? How do you know they are one? How do, they, how do you know that it's Jesus that is the, the glory? How do you know that it is Jesus that is the one that they are speaking about? We'll go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, personal pronoun, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And, of course, the Apostle John interjects that short detail about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He, was, he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He wasn't the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him but he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but of God. And then John says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh. That's the incarnation, beloved. That's the very thing that we are hearing the description of in Luke chapter 1, verse 26 and following. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory. We beheld His glory. What is it? Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's the dispenser of grace. There's the one who gives it to us. It is Jesus Christ. He is the glorious one. He is the great one. John is talking about the glory of Jesus. So when you go back to Luke chapter 1... And Gabriel says he will be great. That's what he's talking about. He will be great. He is the glorious one. He is the Savior. He is the glorious one. And then thirdly, Gabriel says, you notice, he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of the Most High. What is that about? Well, it's about his deity, beloved. It is about him being God in the flesh. Not only is he Savior, he is so also inherently great. And his greatness is even reflected in his title. This is a title, Son of the Most High. Son of the Most High. 
Just that alone speaks of his supremacy. In other words, he is the son of not just someone who's high. He's not the son of someone who has a high position. He is son of the most high. There is nothing higher. There is nothing greater. There is nothing able to save. In other words, there is no one more exalted than Jesus Christ. There is no one more powerful than Jesus Christ. There is no one as sovereign as God most high. Here is Jesus Christ being given that title by the Most High. In fact, all over the Bible, God is referred to as the Most High. And so here is Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us what Gabriel was announcing about Jesus and calling him that very title. He is the Son of the Most High. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it for us. But it's an amazing passage in Hebrews chapter 1. where The writer of Hebrews acknowledges this very fact. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Now, it's just telling us he has spoken to us By means of the eternal Son, Jesus Christ, He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the world. Guess where Jesus, the eternal Son of God, was before the beginning of time? He was there in Genesis chapter 1-1 when it says, In the beginning God created. God created. And he is the radiance of his glory. The exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Nothing speaks of being the son of the most high more than that. Jesus himself even said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So who is this one to come? Who is this one that Mary is being announced will come through her womb? Well, he is Savior. He is greater than all. And he is God himself in person. And the fourth, fifth, and sixth... Reasons for him tell the rest of the story. He is the ruler. He will reign and his reign will not end. In other words, here we see the rulership, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says in verse 32. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, that speaks of his earthly kingdom, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, that speaks to the nation of Israel, and his kingdom will have no end, that speaks to the eternality of his rulership. In other words, Jesus Christ doesn't just come and live a perfect life in which he dies 
an undeserved death so that we might be able to be with him in heaven, and that's it. No, his rule will never end. In other words, there is a kingdom to come. There is a kingdom to come, and that means he had to rise from the dead, doesn't it? There is a kingdom to come, and it will come with him. Listen, it will not be brought in by us. There's aberrant theology out in the evangelical world today that tries to say that we usher in the kingdom, that we bring the kingdom about. No, we do not bring it about. We don't have a kingdom. We have a ruler. His name is Jesus Christ. It is his kingdom, and he will bring it about. This exalted son, this one who was to be born of Mary, who was to be born of the virgin, is the promised Messiah. And Gabriel ties it all together with the Old Testament. You say, what Old Testament? 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. God spoke of this fulfillment when he said this. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. God, being a covenant-keeping God, was to give Jesus the throne of his father David. That was his earthly heritage. It was his earthly heritage, whether you looked at it through Mary, his earthly mother, or whether you looked at it through Joseph, his non-biological earthly father. They were both descendants of David. And so Gabriel is simply saying, listen, he is of the lineage of David, just like you. He will have the throne of David. And that is simply to say that there is coming a time when Christ will not simply rule over his people spiritually, as he does even right now from glory. But there is coming a time when he will rule over his promised Davidic kingdom here on earth. There is coming an earthly kingdom for Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked the earth, it was not yet. Pilate asked him, are you a king? He said, my kingdom is not what? Of this earth. If it was, then those who follow me would rise up and fight. My kingdom is not of this earth. That was simply to say it's not yet. So when Christ returns to the earth, after the seven-year tribulation period of revelation, he will set up his kingdom and he will rule here for a thousand years. So Revelation tells us Righteousness will reign on the earth. Satan will be bound for that thousand-year time frame. Christ will execute his rule until the day when he releases Satan from the pit to war against him, to war against the righteous king, only to be completely defeated. Satan and himself and all who follow him will be thrown into the lake of fire and then will come a new heaven and a new earth in which there is no sin. In Christ's kingdom, there will be no end. Well, for all of that to happen, he had to rise from the dead so that he might reign forever. He couldn't remain in the grave. And so 
he had to rise from the dead, and therefore he has to be glorified for his kingdom to have no end. So you see his rulership and his resurrection and his glorification all right here in just that few short sentences, statements, I should say, in this one sentence by Gabriel. There will only be one king, and it is Jesus, and his kingdom will be forever and ever and ever. He is the perfectly righteous one. He is the one who is God in the flesh, and he will rule because he has risen from the dead and is glorified right now. And so we have the plan. We certainly know the place where Gabriel was dispatched. We know the person, this young virgin girl named Mary. And he makes this grand, miraculous pronouncement to her. She is shocked by any measure that God would have favor upon her. She is shocked even at the message that he has brought to her. And so we now hear the perplexity in her question. The perplexity in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be? It would be a tragedy if it stopped right there in her statement. How can this be? We could equate it with like Zacharias in his questioning, in his disbelief if it ended there. But that's not what Mary said. It simply says, how can this be since I am a virgin? Just in the statement alone, we know that her question and the answer that she receives back all tell us that there was no unbelief in what she was asking. We already know about Zacharias' unbelief. In our study of John's gospel, way back in John chapter 3, we heard of another who had unbelief when Jesus himself said, you must be born again. Zacchaeus didn't realize how that could happen. How can a man be born again, thinking on a human level, perspective-wise? How can that ever happen? Can a man enter his mother's womb and be reborn? I mean, he was thinking physically. But that's not Mary. Mary is perplexed. She's perplexed. And what Mary is perplexed about is that she was going to conceive. She understood, I'm a female. I can have children. I could conceive. But I'm going to conceive not at some distant time by means of the seed of Joseph, but through some other means. And the question for her is, how? How does that happen and I not violate the law? How does that happen and I not be considered an adulteress? How does that happen with me, a virgin? She's not questioning the validity of the announcement, that it could happen, that it's impossible, and that's beyond imagination and beyond human perspective. And so, listen, no. No, she's simply asking the how question because she has never been with a man. So this is exactly a statement again about her virginity, about the absolute purity of her virginity. In other words, the willingness is there. We'll see that at the end. She's willing. She just wants to know where the ability is going to come from. And the answer tells us that it's not a judgment from God upon her of unbelief. 
Gabriel actually makes the proclamation to her. Here it is. Number five, the proclamation. The angel answered and said to her, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth also has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Because nothing will be impossible with God. Here's how it's going to happen to you, Mary. It's going to happen to you the only way that it could happen to you. God the Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High, there's that title again. The power of the Most High, Jesus will be the Son of the Most High. The power of the Most High will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Mary, you will have a son as a virgin. Why? Why? Well, not, not because somehow you are a freak of nature and you're the only person, only female who will ever walk the face of the earth who can produce without the seed of man. By the way, interestingly enough, just a side note here, that, that reality, that scientific reality of producing without the seed of man is called pantheogenesis. Or I should say parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis. Parthenos is the word for virgin. I gave that to you earlier. Parthenogenesis is, is producing from the virginity without the seed of man to produce. Science, by the way, you may not know this. I didn't know this fully until recently, several years ago, but I heard about it again, that science has tried to do this for decades. Millennia, actually. Science, even way back into the early 1930s, has tried to do parthenogenesis on all kinds of lower life forms, things that do not have souls, things like that. They've even tried it with even some mammals, and they've found some success even in lower mammal life, even rabbits. They've been been able to, through parthenogenesis, produce other rabbits. The interesting thing about that is this. When you get into the human realm, when you get into the higher forms, life forms, which is humans, they've never been able to do this. They've never been able to produce it because it cannot be done. It's impossible to be done. Why? Because humans have chromosomes that determine certain things. And the woman has chromosomes that are XX. The male has chromosomes that are XY. Guess what? The male is the one. It is his chromosomes that determine the sex of the child. You realize that? So even if parthenogenesis was possible in humanity, a woman could only produce, even if it was possible, female. She doesn't have the male gene And so God here brings about the birth of his son through something that could never be humanly explained, even in the best scientific world. Mary could never in her virginity parthenogenically produce a male. She would only be able to, even if it was possible and it's not, 
she would only be able to produce a female. And yet here is Jesus, David, or Gabriel says, you will have a son. You will have a son. She's not a freak of nature. No, you will have a son. You will become pregnant. Why? Because God will do a miracle in your womb. And because it is from him, he will be called the son of God. And let me tell us, tell us something here. That last phrase is the title of what people have trouble with when it comes to Jesus. Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. That's what people struggle with. People like to say that Jesus was just a man. Oh, he was a good man. He was a prophet. He was a, a, a person that really reached out to people, was kind to all the people he came around. He was a good person. In fact, he was a very good person, they will say. He actually cared for people. He taught moral principles that are good for us to live by. The Jews of Jesus' day had no issue with him being from the line of David. They had no issue tracing back his lineage, even back all the way to the beginning. They didn't mind if it was from Mary's side or if it was from Joseph's side, taking it all the way back. The trouble people have with Jesus is that he's God. That's the trouble they have. When Jesus professed to be who he was, when Jesus came, as we will see in our study through Luke, when Jesus begins to say he's the Son of God, the Jews want him dead. They want him dead. But God the Spirit would be involved. Gabriel says to Mary, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to be involved here, and there be an overshadowing. Overshadowing simply means God's presence. God's presence will be there. It's like the cloud on Mount of Transfiguration when the cloud descended and Peter, James, and John were engulfed by the cloud of God's presence. You read this and you go, okay, if you're like me, you go, okay, when did that happen? What was the specific time that that happened? When did this overshadowing happen with Mary? We're not told. God doesn't always answer our questions. We're not told here when that overshadowing happened, but Mary understood and Mary believed. Somehow, by God's Spirit, it registered in her mind that the miraculous would happen, that what was being said would, be, would come about by a miraculous happening, happening, and she grasped the wonder. Gabriel says to her, listen... Just so you're not too worried about it, and we'll see this even next time when we go into the farther verses in verse 39. Even your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son in her old age. She was called barren, is now in her sixth month. Listen, they didn't have text messaging back then. She didn't know anything about Elizabeth. As we will see, Elizabeth lived nearly 100 miles south of where she was. 
No, Mary just embraces the reality that unless God acts, unless God does something, I'm hearing this message, and unless God does something, everything's impossible in what I'm hearing. And I guess this is really what what I want to try to emphasize for us this morning as we kind of tone our time down here. That's where faith has to begin, doesn't it? Faith begins with the reality that nothing is impossible with God. Listen, we sit here this morning and we are people who, who believe upon Jesus Christ. We believe that He is our Savior. Those aren't just words. We know that to be a reality, to be a fact. Even if you didn't fully grasp it at the time you believed it, you know that God does what He says. The Spirit of God came upon us, and God overshadowed us. And He granted us grace and faith that we might believe in Him. Listen, this is one of the great wonders in Christ that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? New life from above, born again from God. Something we cannot do ourselves. But nothing is impossible with God. In other words, nothing is too hard with God. It all sounds crazy. I mean, if you're, if you're a thinking person just with, with regular fallen human logic, if you don't have the Spirit of God working upon you, you read this stuff and you say, wow, that's a nice story. That's pretty fanciful. All this stuff going on. I mean, an old guy and his wife have, getting pregnant somehow. That might be a fluke of nature. Maybe that might happen. You try to wrest that away. Gabriel becoming, uh, Zacharias becoming immediately mute and deaf. How does that happen? And then nine months later, he can speak again. Well, maybe he had some kind of virus. And then you get into Mary, and here's this young girl, and she's betrothed to be married, and, and then she has all this happen to her, and, and supposedly, at least from human logic, it happens. It all sounds pretty crazy from a human perspective. In fact, it's impossible. In fact, Mary... I believe she knew that no one would initially believe her. She knew that in the eyes of the world and those even close to her, she knew that she'd be seen as a liar. Somebody concocting this grand miraculous story in hopes that somebody won't start blaming her and saying that she's committed some sin with some other man. Just come clean with it, Mary. I think that's one of the reasons why she rushes quickly up to Elizabeth. Elizabeth would have believed her because of what happened to Elizabeth. Maybe they would think she lost her mind. We're not too far from Mary, really, in our salvation. We believe upon Jesus Christ. We believe the crazy. 
We believe that if we place our faith upon Jesus Christ, this one whom says he can save us from our sins, he dies on a cross, he's nailed to a cross and then dies, he's buried. We weren't there. We, we believe he was buried. We believe he rose again and he's alive now. If we believe that, we'll be saved. That sounds rather crazy. It sounds rather ridiculous. In fact, if you believe that, maybe even your family and friends think you fell off the turnip truck yesterday and hit your head. That you're a nutcase. That you're a loony. In fact, maybe you've heard somebody say these words, well, that's good for you, but for me, and really what they're saying is you're a nutcase. You're a nutcase. None of that mattered to Mary. So she gives a response. She gives a response. The last thing, number six, the profound reality. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So understated. So understated. She could have said, uh, no, no, yeah. I'm not going to be your servant in this deal. No, this is way too outside the realm of human logic. This is way outside anything. This is craziness. This is nonsensical. No one would ever believe me. I'm not going to be your servant in this. She didn't do that. Why? Because, beloved, this, this is what we have to understand. Faith begins with submission. Faith begins with submission. When you believe, then you walk according to that belief. When you believe, you begin to do according to what you believe. God has said it, so let it be done. That was Mary's response. Okay? God said this, nothing's impossible with him. Behold, all right, Gabriel, you pay attention now. That's a pretty interesting statement. Gabriel said to her, behold, Mary, don't be afraid. Now Mary says, behold, Gabriel. I'll just do whatever God says. The Lord said it, I'm good with it. That was her response. It was a response of faith. I'm a willing servant. Let it be done to me just as God said. Now listen, beloved, that is to be our response in this life of faith. That's to be our response. We believe what God has said concerning his son. And while we may not fully understand every detail of all of that, and while others may think that we're crazy to profess salvation in Jesus Christ alone, we walk by faith. Because God said it. The Lord will do all that is according to His word. And so we believe that. Why? Because faith submits and faith can submit because of who God is. There is nothing 
impossible with God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we were reminded once again of the very nature and character of who you are. Reality that we are finite beings interacting with the infinite. That what is crazy from a human perspective is not crazy at all in your eyes because nothing is impossible with you. And while the world may push aside and redefine and think of other ways in which they can explain away the truth of what your word tells us simply because they don't want to believe. You have drawn us to yourself and we believe. And that faith submits in obedience to what it says. And so this morning, as we hear these words and we think about the challenges that we have even in our own life because of faith, challenges that may not be the exact circumstance that Mary and Joseph went through, but are circumstances providentially designed by you that we walk in them, that our faith might be strengthened and encouraged as we trust you, even though others say, that's crazy. May we stand fast, may we stand strong, even against those, even of our own family who want nothing to do with us. Because they fear faith. Oh, they wouldn't explain it that way. They certainly wouldn't say they fear faith, but they do. They fear trusting in a God they can't fully comprehend. They think it's nonsense. That's always what the sinful human heart does. Rejects the truth. Suppresses it in its own unrighteousness. Because it's hostile to you. So we thank you for breaking through the hardness of our heart by your mercy and grace, shining your light upon us, drawing us to yourself, and giving us the faith to exercise in you, making us alive with Christ, seating us with him in the heavenly places, granting us all the blessings that we have in Christ. We are certainly undeserved of your grace, and we ponder it often. So thank you for what you have accomplished and how you are showing us all that is in the birth of Jesus Christ. May we never get tired of it, never grow weary of the all and all that you have done, that you might be glorified and honored in it all. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.